Warriors podcast. I am Max. Rich, I am. Indeed. <laughs> this <laughs> is the Weird Warriors podcast. <laughs> <laughs> On this podcast, we will be focusing young Padawans on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we will be looking at, in particular, Weird War Tales number 48, which has nothing to do with Star Wars, but we don't need a reason for anything on this show. And speaking of which, we'll just going to jump over right now and let Rich talk about some retroactive history and an intel report for you all to listen to. Yep. In the episode we just released, I mentioned that Vic Geronimo, artist of Bulletproof from Weird War Tales 43, was a one and done in the title, and that I was unable to find much of anything about the Philippine artist online. Since that episode was recorded, I was successful in some further attempts at research. The one and done is startlingly literal. Weird War Tales 43 is the only major comic he ever did work on in this part of the world. Every other book was Philippine. Like I said, I dug his work. I would have loved to have seen more of it here. Also, as a PSA, I recently found out that National Batman Day is the third Saturday in September. And June 12th is National Superman Day. Mark your calendars. Who knows? Maybe we'll do a special mission for one of those two when the date comes around. <gasps> Intel report. Lock and key in Pale Battalions Go. A three-issue miniseries by IDW released in August of 2020. Script by Joe Hill, art by Gabriel Rodriguez. For 150 years, the Lock family have guarded the secrets of Key House and its precious collection of reality-deforming keys. There's a key that changes the outward appearance of a man's age, a key that unlocks the heavens, and a key that brings shadows leaping to terrible life. Most powerful of all, perhaps, is the Anywhere key, which allows the user to open a door in one place and step through another, far away, across a continent or even an ocean. The keys have been employed in times of war before, but Chamberlain Locke has forbidden his children to use them to change the tide of the Great War currently ravaging Europe. Defying him, young John Locke has stolen many of the most powerful keys, changed himself to a pure man, and used the Anywhere key to vanish into Belgium, where the war is about to take a historic and horrifying turn. I helped out a bit of the covers in the Grand Comics database up for this one, too. Just saying. He's such a helpful guy. You know, out there helping people out on the internet, the opposite of what everyone else does. So I just want to mention Lock and Key is something I have consumed or or read or watched none of. And I it's not because I don't want to. It's like a time thing. I keep hearing how great Lock and Key is, the comics, even the show and everything. And I just haven't read a panel, watched a second of it. One of these days, one of these days. Maybe well, it was, it was just one of these things. I mean, like it was just, I was just, I ha- literally just happened to see it on the shelf and it was a World War One cover. I'm like, ping, what's this? You know? Oh, I'm in. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was a pretty good read. It was really good. Yeah, listening to that Intel report, it does sound like you can jump in even if that's your first lock and key story ever, right? Yeah. Oh, cool. All right, good. So you don't need to know a thing about it. You can just go 
write for Impale Battalions, go and see if you dig it. And it's only three issues. Yeah, so that's, man, that is bite-sized compared to how long you're going to wait for a story to finish in most comics now. <laughs> so that's cool. All right, so maybe I'll read it uh, during this podcast promo break. And by the way, people, if you have favorite podcasts out there with little promos in MP3 format and you want us to play them here on the show, send them. Send them to weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com because I've got a library of promos I go to. And in that library, hardly anyone submitted anything new in a long time. So I'm looking for new ones to play on the little break here because I'd like to not just do, hey, you guys heard of the Checkered Past? You guys heard of the Justice League podcast? You heard of the same five I always play? If you want to send me something, send it to me. I will pop it right on here in the promo section. So for now, and enjoy. Go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, we're, we're fine ones to talk. Our, we, we've done two promos, and the most active one is about, what, 18 months old at least. <laughs> we haven't done a new promo in a while either. I'm not talking about us. <laughs> it's our show. I'm Shut talking up. about us. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, I don't want to play the same promos, but there's there's more podcasts out there. I'm just, you know, uh, blame it on me. I'm too lazy to go find the MP3 files. I'm sure other shows have them hosted on their websites, but I, I can barely keep up with our own show. Okay. So listen to one of the same old podcast promos I always dip into. And when we get back from that, We'll take a look at the issue at hand. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Star Trek, a new episode every month only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. And we're back. So as I mentioned before the break, we're going to be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 48. And as usual here on the show, Rich is waiting to give you that cover detail. Art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. 30 cents. The Lion of DC Superstars logo rests on a yellow banner on the top of the cover with a skull wearing a GI helmet to the left of it. To the right reads, Extra! What happens on the day after Doomsday? The Weird War Tales title is in green on a blue sky. On a green hill in the background, German soldiers flee from massed American artillery. In the foreground, a German soldier points at the carnage and cries, Herr Commandant, the Americans are smashing us. What are we to do? The soldier can't see the Commandant's face, but we can. A skeleton dressed in officer's clothes and holding a swagger stick answers in an eerie voice, Follow me. I shall lead you to your ultimate destiny. Cover date. September, October, 1976, date of release, June 17th, 1976. Killjoy, based on where the artillery is, the explosion amongst the fleeing German troops would have been fired point blank from our guns. Too close! 
to the CNC. Garcia Lopez has been popping up here regularly since his first appearance in that full-length Civil War battle tale. I haven't had any complaints with his work. Until now. I heard he mentioned the Killjoy, and the skull of the Commandant looks more like a silly Halloween mask. The bony hands aren't much better. The yelling German soldiers wearing a greatcoat bundled up like it's winter, but the background colors look like it's the height of summer. Those colors don't work very well in general. Too many blues and greens all kind of blend together. The title should have been a different color at least. Not a great start. For my comments on this cover, I'm going to say I am depressed that this is a JLGL cover. In my headcanon, I'm at least blaming some of this on a very bad inking job. Please don't ruin this by telling me he inked this himself. Even so, that would do little to explain. I said, don't tell me, Rich. That would do little to explain the exceptionally boring, quote unquote, combat scene in the background. There's more thrills to be found in the ads for snap-type model kits by monogram and the tank trap footlocker of soldiers and stuff inside this very issue. The best I can say about this cover is that I like when the little soldiers stuffed inside the weird part of the logo are green so they look like little plastic army men. It's a tame, serviceable letdown at best. So... We'll leave that cover behind, and we'll move on to the first full-length story in the issue, which Rich is going to tell you all about. Ultimate Destiny. 12 pages. Script by John Albano. Art by WWT first and only timer. Another one of those. Ruben Sosa. It's the cover story. Two German soldiers watch a burning Stuka dive towards their position. It crashes into the ground, and they pray that the pilot isn't conscious in the blazing wreckage. They are stunned when the pilot emerges from the flames unharmed. Deflecting their questions, the pilot asks them where he can find their commanding officer. They dutifully tell him where Colonel Regensburg is, but also that he cannot be disturbed since he is engaged in directing an attack on American forces. The pilot accepts the rejection good-naturedly and leaves, hoping to have the privilege of meeting the colonel another day. On a nearby hilltop, Regensburg watches through binoculars the battle as reinforcements hurries past. His strategy had been brilliant, isolating the Americans from their main forces, blocking supply lines, and silencing their artillery with his own guns thanks to well-placed observation posts. He was certain that he was meant to achieve unparalleled greatness on the battlefield. It was his ultimate destiny there was the title drop in the story in the hours that follow his infantry has little difficulty mopping up the few americans that had survived the artillery barrage no prisoners were taken as he had ordered in the midst of the battle regensburg is honored by the sudden arrival of general schwermer who compliments him on his well-executed battle plan the colonel replies that it was because the germans were truly the master race our, our pure-blooded soldiers were totally superior to those filthy enemy swine. But the general is more cautious. If that belief helps you win battles, Colonel, then hold on to it. But permit me to remind you of the heavier equipment and superior number of troops you employed against those green soldiers. This was their first battle, I am told. Regensburg dismisses the warning. The outcome would have been the same under any circumstances, sir. I've instilled the killer instincts in my men. They've learned to exterminate our adversaries in the same manner they would any beast. 
those Americana are less than dogs. As the general departs, he warns the colonel not to underestimate those dogs. They have a habit of losing battles, but coming back to win the war. The colonel rejects the general's warning. Nothing will stop him from achieving the greatness he was destined to attain. A week passes, and the colonel watches the Americans return from his position. It's the 1st Infantry Division, and the U.S. equipment is what's equal to their own. Turning to give orders to attack, he is thrown to the ground by his aide when American shells start exploding around them. Incredible. They had the range already. Regensburg calls for a conference at his command tent and orders an attack on the Americans without waiting for permission from the field marshal. The other officers don't like it, but the colonel slams his fist on the map on his desk. The devil with the field marshal. We must take the initiative. Strike before the enemy is allowed to dig in. The attack goes on, but the big red one is a seasoned unit, inflicting murderous losses on the Germans. Worse, a second division is reported moving towards them from the south. Ignoring pleas of his subordinate to withdraw because their left flank was exposed, Regensburg instead commits his reserves. It makes no difference. The disorganized Germans are massacred as the attack continues. The Americans hold every inch of ground with grim determination, making the German advance a costly, hopeless task. Regensburg is stunned to later learn that the 2nd American Division had completed the encirclement and the Germans were now surrounded. The suggestion of surrender drives Regensburg into a rage and he vows to fight on. Suddenly, a Luftwaffe pilot walks up to him. He had tried to see the colonel before, but had been turned away. Oberleutnant Newman had just been shot down for the second time by an American P-47, but now he wished to turn a personal defeat into a victory for Regensburg. While aloft, he had seen a weak spot in the American lines, a spot they could escape through. The desperate colonel seized his chance at redemption. Under the cover of darkness, they could quietly withdraw, with Newman leading the way. Once clear, Regensburg would devise a counterattack which would redeem him in the eyes of his superiors. He was meant to be victorious, after all destined to be legend. As the hours pass, Newman's information proves to be correct. Light American resistance was brushed aside. The motorcycle thunders to the colonel's car and passes the message inside. Dangerous a train lay ahead and it was recommended by his junior officers to detour around the route Newman had prescribed. But the pilot reminds Regensburg that any delay could prove disastrous to their escape. The colonel mulls over his decision before ordering the withdrawal to continue along the same route. The German column continues to move forward. The darkening sky suddenly brightens with flares as the Americans spring their ambush. Artillery shells rain down as machine gun and rifle fire riddle the hapless regiment. It's a slaughter. Later, Regensburg lies dying in the mud, surrounded by destroyed vehicles. He doesn't understand. He had been destined for greatness. A pilot is unharmed, which whips the colonel into a fury. Hugh! The traitor that led us into this holocaust. But you shall pay, Judas. Pay with your life. He pulls his luger and fires around into the pilot's chest. But it has no effect. You cannot kill one who has already been put to death, Colonel Regensburg. Placed in a concentration camp. Gassed in one of your ovens for the unpardonable crime of being been born a Jew. Newman rolls up his sleeve to expose a tattoo on his arm before turning to walk through the smoke and flame. Now I must leave you, great conqueror, for there will be others like you who will seek my services. Like you, they will be eager to win victories, certain as you they cannot fail, and I will be there to lead them to their ultimate.
destiny. Killjoy. It's in a couple different pages, but I'll focus my usual harp on miscolored swastikas on page seven, panels four and five, black on red on white. The angles are off by 45 degrees. Also, again, why is this so hard? <laughs> they do it because they care. <laughs> so I'll lead off comments and commendations on this one. And uh, let me just start by saying this one was a real slog for me. It was 12 pages that felt like at least 35. The so-called twist at the end was so bad that it made me feel like I was having some kind of failure in my central nervous system. Add seemingly endless word balloons filled with dialogue leading to not much really happening, and this story adds up to feeling like time spent on a treadmill that turns out wasn't counting your steps to me. Well, at least the art is bland, much like the cover. The work here is serviceable at best with stiff, undynamic body language, cramped panel and page layouts, and on and on. Even the otherwise commendable level of detail in the drawings just, for me, added ends up ended up adding weight to the anchor. Oh, it all starts off nice and early with an eight-panel opening page featuring no host intro logo panel going on, and when we do turn the page and at least get a drab logo for the story's title, there's still no host or intro text. Are we sure this story's in the right mag? Oh, yeah, at the end there's a ghost. But then, uh, but again, the, the so-called reasoning behind that supernatural visitation is more stupid than weird. So maybe this offering is meant for stupid war tales instead? Okay, fine. Here are some attempts at positive art callouts then. On page six, panel one, and page seven, panel three, we get two somewhat exciting looking battle scenes. The shot of the unfortunate machine gun nester getting completely annihilated on page six, panel five, got an actual laugh out of me. So that's something that, that was enjoyable. I kept looking back at that panel, thinking of writing the script. And on page 11, I, actually liked the unrealistic coloring used in the two large and again actually interesting looking battle scene but you know weird coloring in a comic is a thing i like so at least it chopped it up it, like there was something different to look at so all that sunshine and flowers aside this was still a borderline offensive waste of my time <laughs> unlike the whole podcast <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I never said that. Do it for two and a half years. <laughs> anyway, uh, man, I'm just torn over this one. Uh, Sosa's art has such a rough feel to it, but then the detail work he puts in swings me almost all the way back to center. The splash panel on page two which might be the first time since the reprints that the title of the story hasn't been on page one. A colonel looking through binoculars as a column of German vehicles rolls by under him, tires, treads, raising dust is pretty good. So the battle scenes on page 11, but then the all oranges and yellows, reds and pinks of the explosions tracks what could be a real eye-catching page. The backgrounds in so many panels are monochrome too. And then there's the writing. This is the last time we see John Albano in these pages. Slight pause, 
for a gravesite visit callout at Long Island National Cemetery, World War II Army veteran. All story, we're clicking along, okay, all right. And then the wheels totally fall off on the last page. The German pilot is a Jew that died in a concentration camp and he stole a plane twice, maybe, if he's telling the truth about that, in which he was shot down twice, maybe, if he's telling the truth about that, as part of this little game to screw Colonel Regensburg over. Had he been a pilot in his previous life or did he just ectoplasm up a Luftwaffe uniform and know how to fly? What was he going to do to the Colonel the first time when things were going well? This wasn't even personal. He was just looking for a high-ranking officer to play this game with. This story took up about two-thirds of the book, and I get a vague impression that Albano was told at a staff meeting that his full-length battle tale was having five pages cut off and he had to wrap it up. Not the best send-off for Albano or Sosa, but I will admit the use of the word Holocaust to describe what the German regiment went through was well played when the big reveal was dropped. Yeah, yeah, I still feel like, uh, like you know, because I had I had an actual stroke ten years ago, and that was less confusing an experience than trying to rationalize the ghost twist in this story. So, um, to to get my mental levels back in line, I'll take us into the second kind of full length story. It's it's not that long. It's it's called the Greeks had a word for it. It's three pages long. It's uh, written by George Cashdan with art by someone I'm coming to really like because of going back through this series, Bill Drought. Synopsis for it goes a little something like this. Italian Army Colonel Vietri is pleasantly surprised when intelligence reports correctly locate a cave crawling with Greek partisans. They are all taken into custody and marched into a prison camp with the colonel laughing that soon they won't have enough camps to hold them all. But he's taken aback by a shapely woman captive, dressed head to toe in white. Even her face is completely covered by a veil. He orders one of his men to bring her to him. When she asks the colonel what he wants, he responds with, But we be your friend, child. You are, uh, much too beautiful to be herded into a common stockade. If you are nice to me, I can be nice to you. Do you understand, child? Huh. So that's the way it's going to be. Slime bag. All right, so we got our setup here. Moving on. The woman understands, but insists that the colonel must not remove her veil. The reason must remain a secret, even if it meant her returning to the compound. Fietri, and if I'm bungling that, so be it, quickly agrees to her terms as sweat starts to bead on his face. What lurks beneath that covering? Could her face be as beautiful as the rest of her? Anyone ever seen a droopy dog cartoon? <laughs> the question became an obsession as the hours pass. He had brought her to his office, where she sat on his sofa as he groveled at her side. Child... I cannot stand this craving that has overcome me. Ugh. I would give anything for just a glimpse of your face. The woman responds, anything, Colonel? Would you even release all my countrymen from prison? I told you, anything. They'll be easy enough to recapture afterward, he thinks. Soon, the camps are emptied of the Greek civilians as a goodwill gesture. And Vietri hurries back to his guest. 
I have done as you asked. Now, can I? But of course, Colonel, she responds as she removes her veil. Mamma mia! No! Oh, God, no! He shrieks. The woman is a gorgon with snakes for hair, tusks, protruding teeth, and an upturned snout. And big old wings, too. What is wrong, Colonel? Does my face disappoint you? The Greeks had no trouble recognizing the figure that soon flew off overhead. And later, two Italian soldiers went into the commandant's quarters. Beatri had completely vanished. It was funny, an aide remarked. I did not know he'd had a statue made of himself. No, Kiljoy, but a history minute. The Greco-Italian War took place between the kingdoms of Italy and Greece from 28 October 1940 to 23 April 1941. This local war began the Balkans campaign of World War II between the Axis powers and the Allies, and eventually turned into the Battle of Greece with British and German involvement. On June 10, 1940, Italy declared war on France and the United Kingdom. By September, the Italians had invaded France, British Somaliland, and Egypt. This was followed by a hostile press campaign in Italy against Greece, accused of being a British ally. A number of provocations culminated in the sinking of the Greek light cruiser Ellie by the Italians on August 15th. On October 28th, Italian Il Duce Benito Mussolini issued an ultimatum to Greece demanding the secession of Greek territory, which the prime minister of Greece, Ioannis Metaxas, rejected. Italy's invasion of Greece launched with the divisions of the Royal Army based in bordering Al Italian-controlled Albania, badly armed and poorly commanded, resulted in a setback. The Italians encountered unexpectedly tenacious resistance by the Hellenic army and had to contend with the mountainous and muddy terrain on the Albanian-Greek border. With British air and material support, the Greeks stopped the Italian invasion just inside Greek territory by mid-November and subsequently counterattacked the bulk of their mobilized army to push the Italians back into Albania, an advance which culminated in the capture of Klisura Pass in January of 1941, a few dozen kilometers inside of Albania. The defeat of the Italian invasion and the Greek counteroffensive of 1940 has been called the first Axis setback of the entire war, the Greeks surprising everyone with their tenacity of their resistance. Adolf Hitler decided that the increased British intervention in the conflict represented a threat to the Germany's rear while German buildup of the Balkans accelerated after Bulgaria joined the Axis on March 1st, 1941. British ground forces began arriving in Greece the next day. This caused Hitler to come to the aid of his Axis ally. On April 6th, the Germans invaded northern Greece, Operation Marita. The Greeks had deployed the vast majority of their men into a mutually costly stalemate with the Italians on the Albanian front, leaving the fortified Metaxas line with only a third its authorized strength. The Greek and British forces in northern Greece were overwhelmed and the Germans were advanced rapidly west and south. In Albania, the Greek army made a belated withdrawal to avoid being cut off by the Germans, but was followed up slowly by the Italians. Greece surrendered to German troops on April 20th, 1941, and to the Italians on April 23rd. Greece was subsequently occupied by Bulgarian, German, and Italian troops. The Italian army suffered 102,000 combat casualties, while the Greeks suffered over 90,000. Germany would continue on to capture Crete through a primary air, primarily airborne assault. By mid-1942, a highly effective resistance campaign in Greece was underway, but 
that's a story for another time. Some historians say that because Hitler had to bail Mussolini out because the Greeks wouldn't roll over, the start of Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, was delayed a couple of months. This is telling, since the infamous Russian winter was what eventually caused the German advance to grind to a halt on the very outskirts of Moscow. How would the invasion have gone if it had started on schedule? Holy what if. Thank you, Greece. Comments and commendations. Yeah, anyone that read this in 1976 should have seen this coming by the end of the first page. This is a pretty easy script for Cash Dan. Our paisan narrator with the red scarf and soft cap is magnifical. The overweight and balding colonel's desperation on page two, panel four, and outright terror on page three, panel two are perfectly captured. This may be Drought's best work in this title. Quid pro quo is a Latin term that translates as something for nothing. Latin, Italian, that works, right? That didn't work out the way it planned, did it? Creep, go stand in the corner for eternity. <laughs> Our first Italian as a bad guy story in WWT, which is nice. The Colonel could even just as easily been German. Solid stuff right here. Indeed, and I, I gotta thank you again, as I usually do for the History Minutes, that what if twist at the end there? Uh, again, to remind people, I I try not to read the history minutes till we're recording. That is a mind blower for me right there. Like there's your speculative history. That's very cool to think how differently things could have gone. I'm, I'm sure Harry Turtledove or somebody wrote a book about that. <laughs> oh, I've got a boatload of, of, of turtle dove stuff that I haven't gotten around to reading yet because I was reading all the Conroy, uh, Conroy stuff. <laughs> I got a whole shelf of alternate history I haven't gotten to yet. Good I don't stuff. mention turtle dove's name because his some of his books have dragons on the cover, I think. So I know about that guy. Well, all, all the stuff that he did uh, that I bought is stuff that's realistic, you know, stuff that could have happened, should have happened, whatever. He, I think he did like one three-book story arc where like World War II was being fought and then Aliens! And I'm like, eh, I'm not going to get that one. <laughs> See, oddly enough, that's what put him on my radar. But anyway, I'll do a little CNC on this in this happy little story here. I'll say right away, this story did a lot to wash the bad taste out, uh, to wash out the bad taste left in my mouth by the previous performance. The title itself is good for a chuckle, and the skeletal host is, as Rich mentioned, a treat. The title logo is just okay, really, but it's such a step up from the opening attempt that I'm going to go ahead and give it about 3,000 bonus points just for showing up. Getting right to the art, Bill Drought shows us how it's done by, yes, drawing mostly normal people in normal uniforms and clothes in normal surroundings, but amping up the body language and the melodramatic character acting to keep you interested in the story lesson to our opener that we suffered, that I suffered through for 12 pages. Rich mentioned some of this already, but just look at page two, panels two to four, to see what I mean about that acting and melodrama and exaggeration, just enough. It's realistic, but it, it keeps you glued on what could just be a boring scene taking place in a room somewhere. And as for the visual representation of our serpent trust surprise guest, I do believe I found the exact piece of ancient classical art 
that Drought used for reference on this vase from 490 BC. There's a there will be a picture in the album, folks. And sure, I, I was very psyched finding that. By the way, I was like, this looked really classical to me in a strange way. It looked very different than the art and the rest of the story. Like she looks kind of like a painting. I thought. And so, sure enough, I look for, like, classical representations of Gorgons in Greek art. And that was, like, thumbnail number four was this vase with the exact details on it. So I, I was pretty psyched to find that. A rare case of me doing some research, people. So, sure, this story was predictable as all get out. But it was also fun and entertaining. Within its three brief pages... That's something the opener couldn't get done in its seemingly interminable 12 pages. There we go. That's two stories out of the way. We got one bite-sized little tale left to try to finish saving the issue. Let's see if that's what happens. The Day After Doomsday. Two pages. Script by Steve Skeets. Art by our buddy Gurnale. Time had lost all its meaning. The days stretched out endlessly across a rubble-strewn horizon, each one the same as the last. There was no longer any day, no longer any night, but only the continual neon glow springing brightly from out of the earth itself, a glow of deadly radiation. Months, years, perhaps even decades had passed. Yet, this was still the day after doomsday. Youth found itself unwilling or unable to accept that this was the end. He could still take care of himself, this lad. There was still plenty of food to sustain the continuation of this meaningless and lonely existence. And there were still habits that held fast inside him since the day before the blast. He was still a good scout, refusing to litter in a world that was nothing but litter. But it was the loneliness that hurt the most, the persistent empty feeling that no amount of food could eradicate. Only companionship could destroy this all-consuming sense of being alone. And not the companionship of a phantom, of some imagined playmate, but something very real. A pet. But where? The answer lay directly before him, and suddenly he realized it was there. Racing past cages filled with gruesome death onto the paths where children once walked and stared at living beings, racing and knowing that life lay ahead. His destination reached, and the gibbering and screeching and the screams tell him that he is right. They survived. Somehow, they survived. Monkeys! He opens the cage and steps inside. A pet! That is what he wanted. And he had found living things, little knowing that waste products left behind by a world gone mad had driven these creatures quite mad as well. And sometimes, monkeys are carnivorous, especially when food is as scarce as it is now on the day after doomsday. All right, so no killjoy for that because we haven't experienced the end of the world quite yet. So I'll lead us off in our comments and commendations. And I'll say, continuing the streak of embarrassment for this issue's cover story, here, we have a two-page tale that runs a total of nine panels and manages to be far more effective, impressive, and enjoyable than what we, well, I, had to suffer through in the beginning. 
The title itself has a nicely rendered crumbly logo, and the intro text, as you've heard read, is really cool too. Page two, art-wise, features some shifts in perspective while carrying a moody atmosphere throughout, and it's all just a generally captivating and nicely rendered piece of work. Again, Buddy Gurnail's in the house. I'm not super impressed by Gurnail's rendering of the monkeys in the final panel, but whatever. Also, a scout should probably know that monkeys don't make good pets, but I'll let the kid slide. He's been through a lot. So, hey, maybe things go better than the narrator would have us believe, and these savage little primates end up being thankful for their freedom. Opening up a possible sequel, Monkey Boy versus the End of the World. Regardless, even if they just eat the kid, this was a fun little couple of pages. Gotta say, no Steve Scout ad right after this story is such a missed opportunity. <laughs> uh, my buddy Grenell does it again. There's things I like about every panel in this story, but I'll stick to two. Page one, panel two, the scout's tattered uniform. An empty can of beans hanging from one finger as he walks through the wreckage. Panel three, a destroyed fire hydrant still spewing water all over the street. The silhouettes and angles of his work are great. The, a day after Doomsday tagline appears on the cover for the first time and doesn't disappoint. This feature just keeps on improving. Yeah, that shows what I know, uh, like wishing that it would disappear from Weird War Tales after the first few entries. It's become, lately, one of my favorite parts of the book. So that's it, people. The stories are done. But we still have the letters page to look at over in a section that they call the APO Weird War Tales. And I shall go first. Mark Schmieder. We've never heard from this guy. From Concord, Massachusetts. Dear Joe, it doesn't look like Weird War Tales will ever have good stories again. But if this issue's art is an example of what's to come, who cares? Battle of Bloody Valley had a surprise ending for me, as I did not expect to see a formularized ending come from Cash Dan. Nevertheless, it was a well-written story and an interesting variation. Conquest was even more formularized and had an amazing small Amazingly small word count. Bosberg is fantastic by himself, and Coletta's inks were appropriate for the story. Ordeal must have been intended for ghosts, but the art wasn't. Penaligon is one of the best, and the whole issue represented some of 1975's finest new artists. Joe responds, we're not certain about what you mean by intended for ghosts, since Ordeal was originally bought for Weird War, and Penaligon's work has appeared in both titles and will in the future. Yeah, well, about that, issue 45 is actually the only time Penelican's art appeared in Weird War Tales, so we will not be seeing him again. Yeah, again, you know, me and Mark Schmieder seem to have a difference of opinion about a lot of the things. I, I thought that book was pretty good, so Mark, meh, go away. And uh, since you read a Mark Schmieder, I'm not going to read a letter from Linus Sibalius, because uh, at this point, I think that's just pen names for one person or you know, the editors writing it, except for they're actually sometimes critical of the book. I'm going to pick a letter that comes from San Francisco, California, and it starts out like this. Dear Joe, 
I really have to disagree with Jay Zilber about the three-part berry of Bleecker Street cereal. I don't think it was innovative. I think it was repetitive. In fact, it was close to being a complete waste of space. Certainly, there were good points to the story, the basic setup, the after-disaster civilization, etc., but they were lost in the long, lean pages of recap and prologue that seemed to swallow the story. Definitely not good. I'd go along with seeing another multi-part saga, but let's have it a little more tightly written, a little better constructed, and then it'll be worth the wait. That bit of blasphemy against Barry is from George Remulet of, as I mentioned, San Francisco, California, and, uh, other than my response, I'll read you Joe's response because it's nicer. He says, no more multi-parters are in the works yet, but we're starting to think up a 50th issue surprise. Details next time. Meanwhile, we'd like your suggestions and comments sent to ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. So yeah, a little blasphemy against Barry there. You know, I, I we noted the recap pages were a bit heavy even as we were reviewing it, but come on. This is newsstand distribution. I think they did a fine job. And Barry of Bleecker Street was great. And shut up, George. All right? <laughs> I, I, I do have to uh, toss one thing in here really quick. because I do have to mention one thing about Linus Sabalas. It's like one of the things that he griped about was the, introduct, was the intro panel, the Jerry Talak intro panel. And he's talking about it's a waste of space. Stop doing that, blah, blah, blah. And then it's just like Joe, like, gives it to him by putting the pan by reprinting the panel in the middle of the last page. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, go away, boy, you bother me. This is good stuff. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. And you know, Linus, you found a way to sneak into the APO segment anyway, but I'm glad it was for him to get razzed by Joe. So that's that's fantastic. I just skipped his letter entirely because I'm like Rich picked Schmieder. I'm not going to pick Sibelius. And then I found someone speaking ill of Barry of Bleecker Street. So I decided to give them a spotlight. But that, that's worth mentioning. That's that's funny. I missed that completely because I skipped Linus's letter. So that's it. That's the APO Weird War Tales out of the way. The stories are done. What's next? We're going to look at our spotlighted ads for the issue. And Rich is going to kick it off for you. Damn. They're all lot of good ones this time around skateboards the rolling stones latest album black and blue oh by the way in 2023 they just released another one <laughs> uh, you know the green machine but i have to do a double dip of two small ads that are crammed together in one of those terrifically terrible advertisers direct pages gold find it Directions, maps, diagrams, $2, monolith, P.O. Box, 1397, Rockville, Maryland, 20850. Wow, two whole dollars and I can be rich? I'd have to be a fool to pass up this opportunity. I, I have this mental image of getting a Xeroxed map with X marking the spot at Fort Knox or something. Sucka! And right under that one, brace yourself. Someone has invented the hottest item since the light bulb i just know you're going to go out and order 15 of them right away if you can find them because I, I i just don't know how you can live this long without it a fantastic new bicycle invention patent pending stops bicycle fallover the bicycle kickstand pad 
It stretches to fit on the end of your kickstand and eliminates the problem of your kickstand sinking into soft ground or even soft asphalt in driveways and parking lots. Two styles available, one for kickstands that have a bent near the end and one for straight kickstands. State which style you need when ordering. Money back guarantee. Send $7 plus 13 cents for shipping and handling to Bustler Jewel Manufacturing P.O. Box 447C, Sheboygan, Michigan, 49721. I mean, this must be how Jeff Bezos got his start, right? This is an idea too big to fail. I'm going to slap this bad boy on my Schwinn right after I trick it out with two packs of glow spokes. You always were the cool kid between the two of us. I mean, Sheboygan, Michigan, That's was that worked into Looney Tunes as much as Walla Walla, Washington? It kind of should have been, I think. That just, it's just a place that just has one of those great names. Well, remember, Daffy Duck managed to slide Schenectady in once, which was awesome. <laughs> and Schenectady is like, like 20 minutes down the road from where I live. <laughs> so I, I'll say, I got to echo you there. This issue was indeed packed with goodness when it comes to the advertising on display. It's like the sales department knew they had to pick up the slack for that opening story. I'll cheat like I always do, and mention a few ads here. Uh, the one that Rich already mentioned, the green machine. Like, I don't think I had one of these as a kid. I think I just saw the commercial for it so many times that I imagined riding around on it. it is the most badass of big wheel designs. So freaking cool. Then there's a DC TV series ad. It says, you know, it's another one of those kind of, you know, Saturday morning looking ads. And it says the DC TV series featuring... Shazam, Isis, yeah, we've mentioned those before. The Super Friends, right? Okay, gotcha. And welcome back, Cotter. So that was somehow a DC Comics property at one point. I I seem to like have a memory of a Welcome Back Cotter Treasury Edition. Maybe there were brief Welcome Back Cotter comics printed by DC, but to have them in the lineup of the DC TV series and not have them separated out at all. It's like when when like Wendy and Marvin leave the Super Friends, do they show up as new members of the Sweat Hogs? Like now I'm describing something I would like to read. OK, so all that aside for my full spotlight ad, my real one now, I got to pick Justice for All Includes Children, part six, the ongoing public service announcement deal. And this one Superman schools a young lad on the dangers of hitchhiking. Again, it's 1976, people. <laughs> so hitchhiking is front and center. Highlights from that one include Superman warning the kid that whoever picks him up on the road could be a drunk. <laughs> like Superman, just calling somebody a drunk, just in text. It's just beautiful to look at for me. Like, it just kind of like what you don't expect him to use. Like, you're worthless drunk. And, and that the kid could get into an accident or worse if he climbs into a car with a stranger. So you got Superman calling people names and hinting at possible roadside sexual assault and or murder. It's just great stuff. Again, lovely ads in this issue. It was hard to pick one of them. I, I was I was leaning in towards to, to the green machine. I was doing research on that stuff because because I remember seeing these things all over the place. Never mind the green machines; those freaking big wheels. Those were everywhere in 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 the mid to late seventies. Every kid had one of these damn things. And I, I, got, a big, yeah, a regular I, I, I got I got to do a little bit of a correction on my ad. I was I, I, my 
I had a little bit of a blurry eyed moment reading my ad. The uh, kickstand pad was not $7. It's 87 cents. A little bit of a difference. But the thing was, the, the ad copy was a little blurry. So when I leaned in a little bit closer, because like, that's awfully expensive. I'm like, oh, yes, it was 87 cents. That's you, were mentally, uh, you were mentally correcting for inflation or whatever. That's fine. Yeah, history. dollars now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's fine. We get the no prize right there, and I'll mail it to myself, all right? So ads out of the way. Joy that they were. We're going to wrap it up here, at least you know, the stuff where we're talking about this issue of this comic book anyway, and to, uh, and go on to a little section we call, uh, yeah, that's what we call it now. I'm sick of saying the actual title of it. So I'm just going to belch. No, we call it got any last words. All in all, I think I have to admit it's a <laughs> fairly good outing by Orlando and crew. Art wise, it started a, a tad week with the cover and my mixed feelings about the first story. But Drought and Grenell corrected course for the last two tales. Riding was pretty much the same. Ultimate Destiny had me swinging like a pendulum. But I think I'll settle it more on the plus side than minus. Barely. Capital B, barely italicized and underlined to two. By default, that makes my issue winner be one of the last two short stories. And I have to let the Gorgon of Legend, you know, taking out an Italian invader, plus the History Minute, nudge out Day After, Doomsday, uh, Day After Doomsday. APO was A-OK, and we haven't had an ad selection like that in a while. This issue would encourage me to keep shelling out my 30 cents every other month. It would not, however, do so for me. If I thought that this was indicative of an average issue of Weird War Tales, I would not be inclined to pay full price for five good pages of comics out of 17. I'm also going to pick the Greeks had a word for it as the winner, in part, or almost completely, owing to my happy discovery of an ancient piece of classical photo reference that was surely used in the story. That was cool. So... There we go. It's all done. We're going to move on to the dead letter office where we talk about social media and stuff. And, and we read emails from people. We try in vain to sell you stuff, even when Rich is giving you cool prizes for it. But first, we're going to talk about two new reviews we got on Apple Podcasts. The first one is entitled Disappointing. It's rated one star. And it goes a little something like this. As a longtime fan of the Weird War series, I really wanted to like this. But as is becoming more and more common, the hosts can't get out of the way of their own politics. We all get it. What's acceptable today has evolved substantially. But you dedicated your podcast to a comic that was written over 50 years ago. What did you expect? The full outrage every single time something doesn't line up with today's standards is unnecessary and extremely annoying. Just give a disclaimer that this book is a product of its time and move on. Well, absolutely, Kevin9793. We'll do absolutely nothing you said. <laughs> Thanks for your stupid opinion that ignores the fact that my outrage is not faux. It is absolutely 100% mother bleeping real. <laughs> I, I, I am offended that you would call it faux. And on top of that, like, we, 
I, I just don't feel this guy knows what he's talking about. See, but yes, we dedicated a, a yeah, we, we're unaware that we that this comic came out 50 years ago. That's why we mentioned the outdated stuff. You will take the old comics man bell from my cold dead hands. <laughs> all right. So well, go ahead. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, I, I commented, you know, we, we put this on the on the Facebook page and it, it triggered a little bit of a conversation back and forth with uh, with some of our fans and stuff. But the one I said was just like, you know, politics is just such a vague term here. We generally keep politics out of the show entirely because this is escapism and no one wants to listen to Trump bad for an hour. Stick to the book. And that's part of it. Talking about where we've gone as a society since these books were released. Hey, at least this guy said why he left one star view, so I'll give him that. The last guy didn't. Probably Charlie Chicken fans since it appeared Dr. We roasted him. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I do have to give Kevin his credit, you know, um, for um, I it was even me that said on the show, if you're gonna leave a one-star review, how about you actually write a review instead of just rating us and taking off? So I will tip my cap to Kevin for that. But um also shut up. Like <laughs> If I don't like something that I listen to, and believe me, there's a lot of times I don't, I just stop listening to it. So just rest assured, Kevin, who is surely not listening anymore, that we're taking none of your advice and uh, go start your own podcast. All right, so the next review is a five-star review, and it says, and so a new battle begins. And correcting for misspelling, I will read the review and it says, I've been reading the Creature Commandos comics and found this podcast, and it's great. This soldier is all in. See, people, that's from Rocky Star Wind. And that's the kind of review I want to see. I'll be honest with you. I got no time for anything else, all right? But I'll read them all. If, if, you, if I notice them before we record, no matter what you throw up there, I'm going to read it because... I even had, I probably had more fun reading the one star one because, hey, <laughs> oh, sorry for your free podcast you didn't like there, buddy. <laughs> so, anywho, um, we got uh, that little section out of the way, which I enjoyed probably a little too much. And over on social media, over on Facebook and Blue Sky, where we're at. You can find the show on its Facebook page, which you all know about, but just look for the Weird Warriors podcast on Facebook. That's the real online presence that Rich busts his butt on and makes into a really cool place to hang out. Me, I'm over at Blue Sky at Maxpocalypse, and I'll occasionally post when a new episode comes out. Very exciting. So over on social media, we got high fives from Daniel Rapoli, Aya Voss, Magazines and Monsters, David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, Mike Sturba, Tim DeForest of comicsradioblogspot.com. He just had an article about a cool Hulk comic from, from a long time ago today, and I made a comment on it. Great website, people. Comics, old-time radio. Check out Tim's blog. Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. Keith G. Baker stopped by. And our buddies, at the Earth 2 podcast. So David Steele's counterpart, Peter Watson, and him, they have an awesome show called the Earth 2 podcast that Rich and I have done some voice work for, and they actually sent us more voice work. So we're going to have to find time to record that soon. Uh, they sent a script and stuff, and I forgot until right now. <laughs> and we don't have time tonight anyway, but uh, there's a lot of it. So that's our social media love for, uh, what, what was this focused on? Oh, yeah. 
This edition of the Dead Letter Office is brought to you by episode 53, which focused on the Haunted Tank miniseries by Vertigo from 2009. And we got some Gmail about that subject as well. And yeah, I'll mention Red Bubble at the end, but you know, I don't know why I bother. So our first letter, our first G, our first email, I'm going to have Rich read, and it's from our buddy Mike Stewart. Hey, bros. First, thanks for covering this miniseries. I'll admit it had some good points and others not so good. I know it's the haunted tank, but I agree that the amount of Confederate iconic, iconography and rationalizations were painful. Naturally, you're going to have to have some of it in this series. It's Jeb Stewart, after all. Maybe it's because of events in the past five years or so, but a lot of that stuff hits harder nowadays than maybe it did in the 2000s. I do like we have an explanation of why the ghost is there. Though if he'd been haunting his descendants since 1864, you'd think some sort of family legend would have come up at their reunions. Excellent point, sir. I also liked the background info. Still, the flashback scene of the slave rape was too much, even for a vertical comic, in my honest opinion. I also expected more resistance from Jamal Stewart to the ghost. Maybe you guys skimmed over that. I wasn't a fan of the ghost being able to slice off tank barrels and such either. I could live with amusing an M2 as he'd just be pulling the triggers, but the other stuff, too much, even if I imagined it looked good on the page. Thanks again for the overview. I've been curious, but I knew I'd have no luck getting my wife to read the series to me. Consider yourselves thanked by her as well. Well, you're welcome. Like I said, you're the ultimate winner here, man. This is You, you started all of this. <laughs> so... And as as we said, like in the in the haunted tank episode, we we had to like just carve off like whole pages of of storyline that didn't like materially contribute to the story. Otherwise, we'd have like a three hour episode, and Max wouldn't have wanted to have edited that. <laughs> so and maybe some stuff did you know get left on the page because I had to make cuts. But you you still obviously get the the basic premise of it. Yeah, I responded to to Mike on that one. And by the way, that's Mike Stewart of the Save for Half podcast, who uh, they they cover role-playing games and stuff for nerds like me. And it's freaking great. So Save for Half podcast, go check it out. I responded to Mike and I told him that really there wasn't much more to it. There was more repetition of Jamal arguing with Jeb, but there wasn't much, there wasn't really any more depth to it than what we were, than what we implied in the synopsis. Like, it was just kind of the same things over and over again, and suddenly the series is over. So I let him know that, yeah, it, you weren't missing out on any substance there. Rich captures the main stuff and just didn't repeat himself 4,000 times, which is kind of what I felt like that miniseries did. So I did write back to Mike. And the reason Mike mentions his wife is Mike has uh, has some vision problems uh, these days. So um, he loves comics, but, you know, he really can't, can't read them anymore. So uh, he, when he wants to, he'll have his wife, his wife read them to him and describe the scenes and all that. So our next email is from someone they may have heard of, might be like one of the Mark Schmieders and Linus Sabalius's of our show, except I like this person. <laughs> this is uh, from our good buddy, Jason Zeller, the founder of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. And he says, hey guys, thanks for doing this Vertigo miniseries. I thought you guys did a great job of covering the five issues and around the same time it takes you to cover one issue of the Weird War Tales books. Again, credit goes to Rich 
for finding a way to chop those synopses up into almost the exact amount of time. It just goes to show you how decompressed modern storytelling is and how the older storytelling covered a lot more content per issue. Gotta agree with you there. The covers were pretty good for this series, though I love seeing Joe Kubert's version much better. And yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a hard contest to win. There were several aspects of the story that I enjoyed, such as when Jeb notices that Jamal is his descendant and the look on his face when he says, a mistake has been made. Yeah, the art in that mini, in my opinion, uh, was fantastic. I have nothing bad to say about the art. Jason says that was priceless, and Jeb's great action sequences were amazing that Mike mentioned. And yeah, I'd, we did too. Like The increased physical ability of the ghost made the story more interesting to look at, at least. Because again, Flint Henry was kicking out the jams on that miniseries art-wise. Jason goes on to say, I also enjoyed the comedic moment when the tanks when the tanks were face-to-face -face after bumping into each other and trying to get out of the situation. High point for me, too. Jeb did so much damage and took out so many of the enemy soldiers that it made you wonder if the crew of the tank would have survived at all without him. I'm guessing not. The back-and-forth conversation between the two relatives was relatively eh, funny at first, but it never seemed to go anywhere or gain any traction, like I was saying. And so to me, it began to lose its luster at some point. There was never a resolution or understanding between the two characters that was satisfactory. Though Jeb did some crazy action sequences of taking out much of the enemy, it was hard to actually enjoy or root for him due to the backstory that they were revealing over the course of the series. The characters, all of the characters, soldiers and Jeb and whatever, racist jokes and other back and forth language, though, could be considered as realistic writing, but it was hard to overcome and kept pulling me out of enjoying the story completely. Yeah, I don't think I used the word try hard in that episode, but I should have, because the whole, the writing style felt very try hard. <laughs> and Jason says, he concludes with, and the story seemed to end suddenly, almost as if there would be a continuation of the series later. And see how I paused there, even though I had no nothing else to say? That's what it felt like at the end of the last issue, okay? So there we go. We have the Gmails taken care of. Everything's all wrapped up. Uh, Rich is waiting in the wings here. And he's, he's, he's like, well, Max, can we finish this goddamn thing? Can you stop talking, please? And I say, fine. And Rich has something you actually want to hear, which is a teaser for the next episode. Oh, yeah. We did a special Big Five birthday month celebration for Max in July with a Jack Kirby edition of The Losers, if you'll recall. Guess whose birthday it is this month? And guess what we're going to do and who we're going to do it with? Oh, yeah. Sergeant Rock, baby. Issue 349, to be exact. Meet Easy Company's newest replacement, the dummy. I was going to originally save Rock for the last of the big five books, but you know, I could hit by I could get hit by a meteor tomorrow. So why risk it? Tune in in two weeks because nothing is easy at the Weird Warriors Podcast. Move out. Right on. And yeah, A, why wait to do Sergeant Rock and the dummy? But I just got to say, you're reading that teaser and we got like, guess what we're going to do? 
and who we're going to do it with. And it almost sounds salacious until you remember, we're a couple of comic book nerds. We're talking about really being really excited about Sergeant Rock, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, because that's who we are. We are the Batlin Bros. We're the Weird Warriors. This is what we do. This is the Weird Warriors podcast. And on this podcast, we promise to make war. No more.